right, well, good morning. And good morning to those of you who are joining us online as well. If you are new with us on campus or watching for the first time, we are so grateful for that. And we would love to know who you are. I would encourage you to text the word CONNECT to the number that is on the screen, and one of our staff members will follow up with you. And we'd be happy to answer any questions that you might have, and we'd love to help you find out how you can be more involved in the life of our church. If you are interested in knowing more about our church and how you can be a part of our church, we do have our Discover Bayshore lunch today. That'll take place immediately after the 11 o'clock service, so probably uh, getting started right at about 12.15. And so you can make your way to a life group after the service and then join us for uh, a free lunch and where you can meet our pastors and learn more about uh, who we are as a church and, and answer, ask any questions that you might have. As we uh, think about uh, you know, the things that God is laying before us this year and uh, begin a new year and we kind of uh, hit reset in some ways, uh, I just wanna encourage those of you who are not already uh, to get engaged in serving on a ministry team. Uh, we have several opportunities, several needs for you to serve. Our greatest need, as always, is our children's ministry. God has blessed us uh, with so many children who uh, come on campus every Sunday. That number is growing back uh, to where it once was. And so we do need volunteers to serve from birth uh, through fifth grade. We would love for you to be a part of that. You can email Lucas, L-U-K-A-S, at churchonbayshore.org, or you can stop by the boat to learn more about how you can be a part of that team. Uh, also, uh, if you are gifted uh, in tech, media, or on, uh, and playing an instrument, we would love for you to serve on our worship and media team. There are opportunities there. You can uh, get in touch with uh, Pastor Justin and uh, find out more about the opportunities to serve in those ways. In addition, our first impressions team does not have the numbers that it had uh, pre-COVID, and so we do need more people to serve on our first impressions team. You can stop by the welcome desk to learn more about how you can serve in that way as we welcome and connect those who join us on campus. Uh, being a healthy church that has people engaged in serving really supports us as we live our lives on mission, as we live sent lives. Last week, we began a three-month focus on what it means to live sent. We talked about the fact that God has a mission. That is clear from the book of Genesis, that's the first book of the Bible, to the book of Revelation. That's the last book of the Bible, that God has a mission. And following God, being a Christian, means joining God on that mission. And a Christian asks ourselves the question, how can I give my life for that? How can I give my life to that? Now, while we certainly see stories of people who move across seas to a place where there are very few Christians, and we certainly see people move to cities where there are really no churches or the, the number of Christians are in the single digits in that city, and we, we know people who share the gospel with almost everyone they come in contact with and, and seek to really live their lives so that people would see who Jesus is in towns like this. The reality is that most people do not live in that way. That is not the norm for Christians by any means. And so if living a sent life is a part of what it means to be a Christian, then based solely on that, we realize that there is a breakdown here for most believers. Now, as with anything, there are many facets to this. Some would say 
It's the difficulty of our culture that has caused few people to really live their life on mission to live sent. Some would say it's the lure of prosperity and, and the distraction of, of wealth that has, has caused people to not focus on the priorities that Christians should have. Some would say it's the influence of postmodernism and just the, the difficulty to engage in conversations about absolute truth and heaven and hell and those things. And these are certainly factors. But what I want to do today is to focus on the heart of this issue. I think it's important to acknowledge this if we really want to see people living their life with the purpose of living sent. And perhaps it's important to clarify what we're talking about today for the sake of where you spend eternity. For various reasons, I think that we have changed the definition of what it means to be a Christian. Now, some would say, well, I, I don't call myself a Christian. I follow Jesus or I'm a Christ follower. Okay, but what do you mean by that? What do you mean by I'm a Christian? What do you mean by I'm a Christ follower? What do you mean by I follow Jesus? And I think we often mean I want to go to heaven. And so I live in a culture where Christianity is kind of what people believe it takes to go to heaven, and so that's why I'm a Christian. I, I didn't grow up in church. I do remember going to vacation Bible school when I was eight years old, and all I remember about it is that it smelled funny and the people were nice. And so I didn't have a lot of child experiences with vacation Bible school, and even as I started to go into ministry, it wasn't you know the same as it had been when I was a child, but I was serving at this church, and they had a vacation Bible school, and I was just an intern there, and as I was serving this church, the last room, you kind of rotated where you would go, and the last room that you went to for vacation Bible school was uh, where they told you a story, and at the end of the story, the lady who was telling it asked the children, you know, ranging from ages first grade to fifth grade, who in here wants to go to hell and burn forever, and if... If you don't, and you want to go to heaven and be with Jesus, raise your hand. And so probably throughout those, you know, kids going through there, 80 or so kids raised their hand. And so then the pastor comes on stage that Sunday and said, we had 80 kids except Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So what we are communicating often is how little it takes to follow Jesus and how little following Jesus really affects your life that you just can raise your hand and say, I wanna go to Jesus, I wanna go to heaven and be with Jesus instead of turning and burning. And that's what it takes. But John chapter 12 tells us that Jesus says, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life or whoever hates his life for my sake will find it. In Luke 14, Jesus says that we must count the cost before we follow him. And in Luke chapter nine, Jesus said, whoever wants to follow me must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. Now, in addition to this, in the same chapter of Luke, Luke chapter nine, that's where we'll be reading today, we see three interactions between Jesus and people who want to follow him that emphasize the implications of following Jesus. Let's take a look at them a little closer. And I realize that what we're talking about today are hard truths for us if there are other things that we treasure more than Jesus. Let's look at these. Luke chapter nine, verse 57. It says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. 
Now, by by the time we're here in Luke, Jesus had quite the reputation. He had taught with authority. He had healed people. He had performed other miracles. And there was this cycle in the life of Jesus of people following him because of what he did, then hearing his teaching and leaving. We don't talk about that a lot, but that's happened in the Bible. He would draw a crowd, and that crowd would grow smaller because they really didn't want to follow Jesus. Just prior to this, Jesus had foretold of his death and that they were on the way to Jerusalem, leaving where their ministry had mostly been. So to follow Jesus would mean to go into Jerusalem with him, where he was going to face persecution and arrest and ultimately crucifixion. So this man says, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus' response to him is this, verse 58. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is trying to communicate to him what to expect. There is no guarantee of where we will sleep. You have your house, but if you follow me, Foxes have holes, birds have nests, they both know where they're going to sleep, but we don't know where we are going to sleep. Jesus is telling him, it's not glorious in the world's eyes. It's not comfortable in the world's eyes to follow me. They said of Roman soldiers that only the light and the air were their portions. That meant that the authority of their commander and the mission that they were on guaranteed them nothing except for light and air. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying that I guarantee you none of the security you have. And based on this text, we can conclude that he probably does not go. It moves on to another encounter, verse 59. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Burial of the dead was of the highest religious and cultural obligations for a Jewish person. In fact, the law permitted priests to touch the dead body of a family member. They were not supposed to touch anything that was unclean, but Leviticus 21 verse 2 says they could if it were a family member that was being buried. The Talmud, a Jewish manuscript, said he who's dead lies unburied before him is exempt from reciting the Shema. Meaning, you know, the, the, the importance of reciting the Shema every day can take a back seat to the burial that needs to happen of your family member. And this was tied to the commandment of honor your mother and father to give them a proper burial. So what Jesus says in response to this man was as shocking then as it is now. Verse 60, Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, we, do, we need to acknowledge that there has been and still is a lot of debate about what Jesus is saying, what exactly is happening here. Some say that Jesus is saying, don't bury your father. Let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. Some have said that Jesus is, is saying the father has not died yet. This man wants to stay until his father does die and then bury him. And Jesus is saying, no, come with me now. Some have said that this is referring to a second stage of burial that would happen particularly among the wealthy where a year after death, they would transfer the bones of the deceased to ossuary. 
I tend to lean towards the first as it's the most literal translation. Those other could be true, but that's what I lean to. But here's what we know in this case. We can gather that going back to bury his father would cause this man not to be able to follow Jesus now as they're going into Jerusalem. And Jesus says, leave that burial to the dead. He can't mean that literally. And you proclaim the kingdom of God now. Now, again, based on this text, we can assume that he also does not follow Jesus into Jerusalem. It moves on to another example, verse 61. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Now, we know that he can't simply be saying, let me say goodbye real quick, because goodbyes don't take that long, unless you're leaving for work and it's preschoolers that you're saying goodbye to, of course. And, and I just wanna say this to some of you right now, when you drop your children off at daycare or in the children's ministry, just get out of there, just go, just leave, okay? We're, we're clingy parents, our kids are you know, clingy, they wouldn't want me to say that, so we're not like cold-hearted or whatever it may be, but listen, they're gonna cry, just go, okay? You're, we want more people to serve in children's ministry for a long time, we need you to get out of there so that it does, you don't make it worse. So this is obviously more than just a goodbye. He is either trying to tie up loose ends or he is struggling with the goodbye. He's struggling with looking back and letting go before he goes with Jesus. And that makes sense in light of what Jesus says. Verse 62, Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, this audience and the audience who would read the scriptures for the next you know, century or so would immediately think of Elijah and Elisha. When he says, let me kiss you know, them and tell them goodbye, and then he sacrifices oxen and he follows Elijah right away. And this same imagery here of not looking back is given there. Now, today we have automatic tractors and farm equipment, you know, with air conditioning and iTunes and all those things. And so you just get in and you kind of coast but if you're using a manual plow, especially with oxen like they did back then, then you can't plow straight while looking back. I mean, it just makes sense. I remember whenever my dad would let me mow the yard and he would get frustrated with me and I didn't understand why until I got old enough to look and realize every curve had you know, the high grass still left because I wasn't really focused. And even there would be uneven lines and all those kind of things because I was just looking around, you know, doing those kind of things instead of just focusing on what was right behind, before me. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying, you can't serve me if you're always looking back. You can't serve me if you're always second guessing the value of following me. Because to look back really means to long back. It means that we're really unsure if he's worth following. We've let go of things. We've let go of a life. We've given up money. And we're always wondering what it would have been like. Would it have been better it means that we're not really sure he's worth following, especially if it means into Jerusalem, especially if it means into adversity, especially if following Jesus doesn't look on earth as good as what we had before. We have bought into this idea that the gospel says, if you follow Jesus, your life will always be comfortable. Your life will be better on earth which is just not a biblical concept. If you follow Jesus, everything is going to be okay is not the teaching of the scripture. That's not what Jesus was saying to them. In fact, these who are in this audience 
were many who just said they wanted to follow Jesus, but when they realized where that meant they were going, they looked at their lives and did not go. If you go back in Luke chapter nine, verse 51 through 53, it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. They're in this area, this region of Samaria and the Samaritans and the Jews are at odds with one another. And the Samaritans said, we're not following you into Jerusalem. We're not going there. Now, remember Isaiah If you were with us last week, his response to God's call, verse eight, Isaiah chapter six, verse eight, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here am I, send me. Isaiah says, God, do with me whatever you desire to do, no matter what the cost was. And Isaiah would preach to his people who would reject his message and he would eventually be killed for it. And yet we have these people who are saying, I'm not following Jesus there. But if Jesus is king, if God is king, then it is worth whatever. If we aren't looking at at things as if Jesus is the one and only king who has all authority on heaven and on earth, then the things I just talked about, well, they're very uncomfortable to give up. And when comfort or something else in this world is our goal, when it is what we live for, when it is our purpose, then it is often the reason we do not follow Jesus. I'll give you one more example from the scriptures. It's a more popular example of something like this. It's the rich young ruler. And I'm gonna read from Mark chapter 10, verse 17. It says, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not fraud, defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This man comes and kneels at the feet of Jesus, calling him good. He recognizes who Jesus is. And he's kept the rules. He's kept the law. And Jesus says, sell everything you have if you wanna follow me. And why would Jesus ask this? Because he knew that there was something that was worth more heaven there was something that was worth more than God to this man and when this man is asked to sell these things he walks away sad he wrote the song here I would do anything for love but no I won't do that not really by the way now Jesus isn't really asking every person to sell everything they have to follow him but Robert Gundry says this the fact that this isn't a universal command brings comfort only to the people who Jesus would ask to sell everything. If I say to you, not you don't have to sell everything to follow Jesus, and you say, whew, 
then it is very likely that Jesus may be asking you to sell everything because your everything or your one thing is the barrier in between you and a life lived for Christ. I'll say this very plainly, security is often a barrier to following Jesus. Security, our security is often a barrier to following Jesus. We have some level of comfort, some level of security in our life, and we don't wanna give that up even for Christ. When we come to Jesus and when we see things in the scripture and when we hear maybe the call of God on our life, we think, well, where, where will I sleep? Will I see my parents again? What about my life that I've built here? The things that I've lived for? Who will I have to minister to? Now, don't make these words more difficult than they are. He's not saying there will never be a time in your life when you have a bed and a pillow and a roof. He's not saying it will always be wrong to be at your parents' funeral. He's not saying that one struggle you have with letting go makes you unfit for service to him. He's not saying that you will have to sell everything. I think, I think sometimes people buy into this extremism, and so they, they have to do these radical things to really feel like they're, feel like they're following Jesus. I think the kind of litmus test there is, do, they begin to, do you begin to take pride and look what I've given up, look what I've done? It doesn't say that you have to do those things. For, in fact, I would say for almost every one of us, following Jesus will enhance, amplify, give purpose to these things in our life. But, but we have to ask ourselves this question. Do I want Christ above all? Is he what I treasure more than my security, more than my family, more than the things I've accomplished in my life? Do I want to follow him more than anything? And then there was this clear line that was drawn where people said, I'm not following Jesus if it means that. And persecution draws this clear line where people say, I'm not following Jesus into that. I think that in a prosperous Christian culture, we convince ourselves that we are following Jesus when we are really not. Most of you who profess to be Christians, and most of you do profess to be Christians who are with us online this morning or on campus, would say, I would follow Jesus in Jerusalem, but you won't even follow him in Niceville. You live in Niceville. The town is called Niceville. And you say, I'll follow Jesus wherever he takes me to go, but your life in no way right now looks like Jesus's. You're not living for Jesus the way that we see in the Bible. And for many of us, we are content with a church version uh, or a Christian version of being more educated and being more well-rounded. And, and the argument that we have about church today is typically between the people who see that we need to be more churchy and the people who think we don't have to be so churchy. And so you have this group over here who's trying to be more well-rounded and more educated about the things of God, and they go to church for that. And you have this group over here who relies on articles online for that and things you know, via, via the internet for that. And that's really the argument, but that shouldn't be the argument because following Jesus is more than learning about him 
and from him. Following Jesus is about more than learning from him and about him. Now, now listen, it certainly is learning from him. It certainly is learning about him. But it's very clear that God has a mission. And our lives on earth, if we are living for God, should be about that mission of seeing people come to worship him. And I would say that most of us are not living to that end. We do not go out the door of our house thinking about that. We do not leave this building thinking about that the way that we should. We do not view people in light of this. And I think we often say it's because of the culture. It's because of them out there. The Bible doesn't speak to that. The Bible speaks to how we should be living. And I would say that churches do not struggle with mission because of the culture outside of the church. Churches struggle with mission because of the culture inside the church. Churches do not struggle with mission because of the culture outside of the church. Churches struggle with mission because of the culture inside the church. We have affirmed each other in our belief that we are following Jesus, but we are not on mission for him. In our life group lessons this week, we talk about when Jesus first called the disciples to follow him. He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He says, I have a purpose for you in this life and it is to reach people. This is what Jesus has made clear about what it means to follow him. Our life should be revolved around that. That should be really our purpose, to glorify God by being on mission for him in this life. We will be with him for all of eternity in worship, and he leaves us here for this. Now, I just wanna ask you to examine your life, really just your church life right now, and ask if it is what Jesus had in mind. So when you're here on Sunday, when is the last time you've talked to a new person? Like somebody you see and you're like, I don't know if they go to this church. I don't know who they are. So ultimately, I don't know what they believe. I don't know what they're struggling through. But or do you just show up and talk to the same people every single Sunday? There are people in this room right now who they don't have friends. They don't have the church family that you have. They're here. You might get bombarded today, visitors. I really apologize for that right now, kind of. I don't, but they're here on our campus. They may just need a community. There may be something serious they're going through. They may not know Christ. And we're at church, and we're too caught up in ourselves to make that a priority, even on our campus. First impressions, our goal is not just to wave and say, hey, People don't need a friendly church. They need friends. We've got to get people connected. First impressions team, if we meet somebody new, maybe, maybe you know, be careful the first time you meet them, especially if you're a single guy and they're a single girl, you want to be a little careful there. But you know, if we see them coming back, we need to find out their story. We need to find out if they have family, if they have support, how, what, what they need, get them connected. We, don't, we can't do everything ourselves, but make sure they're connected. Do we approach Sunday mornings with this kind of intentionality? I shouldn't have to have some formal training program to do that. We probably do. 
or will, because, but I just think do it, care. Okay, that's why we have more staff than just me, just to be clear there. <laughs> Let me ask you another question. What Bible study are you a part of that actually has people who are not Christians at? Or what time do you spend trying to teach people to follow Jesus or show people what it's like to follow Jesus who are not Christians? Because a lot of us come to church, we hear a sermon from the Bible, then we go to our life group and we probably hear some other Bible study and forget the sermon at that point. And then you might have a Sunday night Bible study with another group of Christians. Then you have a Tuesday morning Bible study with another group of Christians or Tuesday night. And then Wednesday night you study the Bible. And then another day of the week, it's, it's all your Christian friends from other churches. You gotta get together and study the Bible. And all this Bible study, you're never doing the primary mission of God on this earth to carry the gospel, the word of God to people who need to hear it. Look, I love the scripture. I mean, I, I, I think that's evident if you know me. Where as soon as we get done with Live Sent, and every sermon in Live Sent, by the way, it's like a topical sermon, but every one is a passage, by the way. Topical sermon, okay, I'll find a good passage to teach on that topic. And then we go into the book of Mark. And then last year, I went through the minor prophets. Like, I think it's very clear that I love the scripture, but most of you need less Bible studies. And you need to do the things that God has called you to do. They get in the way of us living on mission for God. I, I, I'll say this, you know, in order to do that, we really need group multiplication. That means where new groups are forming so that, you know, because there's a certain limit to a size group where you actually get intimate with one another and are accountable to one another and we need to start new groups. But here's the biggest opposition to new group starting. Well, what about my friends that are in this group? Like, we're gonna leave half of them. And I get that. that hopefully you stay in touch with some of those people, but it is a reality. You may lose friendships if you start a new church, some of you are going to start a new church. You may lose friendship if you start a new group. Okay, I get that. But here's what I've noticed. People move cities because of the military. People move cities because of jobs. And you won't move away from your friends because of the command of Christ. He has all authority. Yes, the US government has authority. Yes, your job has authority. Christ has all authority. I do not think the real issue is your love of your friends. I think the real issue is the command of Christ is not more valuable than that, and those other things are. I'm not saying these things are easy, but these are the things that we're called to do for God. We should have this culture where our lives are meeting, leaving space to meet non-Christians and invite them to learn about God and invite them into community with us. And listen, yes, serve your church, but I'm telling you, and you tell me if this is ever a problem, the, the thing we should celebrate the most is somebody says, sorry, I can't serve in this ministry today because a friend is coming with me to church today who doesn't go to church. And we say, praise God, we'll find somebody else because so many people are willing to serve because they realize that kind of stuff is taking place. For all of our groups, our groups have been asked for a year just to pray that one person would come to faith in Christ. I hope your group is doing that. If your group is doing that, not doing that, why not? If they're not, then that just shows how little of a priority this is to us. 
But this is what God has asked us to do. He, in the Great Commission, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and I will be with you. God promises to be with us in this. He promises to be with us in this. And so we must focus on him. I'm telling you, it's we must focus on him, not ourselves. Jason Duke says, and I think it's in the curriculum today, based on years of observation, I would suggest that the North American church has commonly dedicated its energy to help Christians grow through a discipleship that focuses simply on personal development. It is highly individualistic. It too often results not in becoming fishers of people, but rather in becoming self-sufficient, moralistic I wanna learn the Bible so that I can be personally stronger. And yes, we are equipped by reading the Bible, but it's so that we can live on mission for God. It's so that we can live on mission for God, not that we would be focused on ourselves. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to Boggy Talk this week. Pastor Justin and I talk about what individualism is and how it affects the church. But I think the ultimate question for you and I today is this. The ultimate question for you and I is whether we see Jesus as our purpose or a means to our purpose? The ultimate question for you and I is whether we see Jesus as our purpose or a means to our purpose. Is Jesus who we're living for? Or is Jesus someone we believe can give us what we want? So what is holding you back or living your life for Christ. The kingdom of God is not saying, okay, all the stuff that's so valuable, I'm giving that up because I'm supposed to. The kingdom of God is like a man who had found a treasure buried in a field. And upon finding that field, he went and sold everything that he had to buy that field. The kingdom of God is realizing that what Jesus has for you, the purpose that Jesus has for you, is far more valuable than anything else in your life. And so if he is our purpose, listen, if he is, on our, if he is our purpose, then we will be on mission for him. There's tension with all this stuff and accountability needs to happen where people ask us, are we really living on mission for God? And the question really is that. It really is, how are these things fueling a life lived for his purpose? And that's what happens in Luke chapter 10. There's some who follow Jesus and Jesus sends them out and they go out and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God and people are saved and lives are changed and people are healed. But I re reiterate here as we close that our purpose is to glorify God and God invites us on mission with him. It's, it's to be with him and God is on mission and he invites us to that. You are not a commodity to be used for some pastor or some church that just wants to grow. To fit into some structure of church growth. That's not what this is about. This is about God 
and who he says you are and responding to him with obedience and mission. In Luke chapter 10, after the disciples go out, look what happens. It says the 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Just to recap, God worked through them as they obeyed him on mission. But he says this, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Our joy is that God, a holy God, has called us sons and daughters. And our names are written in heaven. And so God has left us on this earth for the purpose of living our lives to reflect that glory to everyone around us. And that's something that requires intentional choices to pursue him and follow him wherever he goes. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray in this moment right now that we would examine our hearts. More than that, that we would ask your spirit to search our hearts. God, what is it that is most valuable to us? What is our joy? I think a great way for us to know this is what what we think of when we think of heaven. When we think of heaven, do we think of you? Do we think of Jesus? Or do we think of other things? or conditions for heaven. Because you, Lord, are the one of ultimate worth. And God, in you, not only do we declare that you are worthy, but we find our true worth. And so God, we're on mission, not because that's what we're supposed to do, that's not, not because that's what the pastor says, not, not because it's quote unquote the right thing to do, but we're on mission because that's where you are, Lord. That's just very clear from your word. And it's very clear when we are on mission with you that your spirit is with us. And so Lord, I pray that we would surrender all things to you, that we would come to your throne, kneel at your altar, and God, And I pray that if we're sincere, we would pray this right now. God, take away everything that is a hindrance to me following you. I lay it all at your feet. And God, as you pick us back up, as you pick us back up from your altar, because we don't have the strength to stand up in your holiness. As you pick us back up, everything that you allow us to keep, may we now see it in light of your glory to be used for your purpose. So God, whether we're surrendering to you for the first time this morning, 
recognizing our need for a savior or whether we've failed you over and over again as Christians, God, your grace and your mercy are real. Your love for us is real. And may, may we realize that even in our struggle, even in our failure, and even in our victory, our joy is not in those things. It is in being yours. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.